Hi, and welcome to the EUC podcast from the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change at York University. I'm your host, Kyle Thiessen. In today's episode, we'll be taking a trip into Toronto's venerable High Park, the largest in the city, which is one of the area's most popular spots for walking, cycling, or just getting out for a picnic. Here, you'll find ponds, sports facilities, a large off-leash dog area, playgrounds, eateries, and even a zoo. But beyond these recreational features, the park holds a long history and points of local significance that often go unnoticed by visitors. It also represents some of the dynamics at play between ecologies, indigenous people, and settler colonialism that have shaped the broader region. So join me in taking a deeper look at this Toronto landmark. The history of High Park goes back through many centuries of indigenous habitation in the area. The current treaty holders of the territory where High Park stands are the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, and the area has been caretaken by groups including the Anishinaabek, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga. The park's colonial history began with the establishment of John and Jemima Howard's estate, which they called High Park, in 1836. Skipping forward a few decades, High Park was deeded to the city in 1873, and despite some grounds expansion, remained in a relatively undeveloped state with legacies of the pre-colonial ecologies of the area. However, starting in the early 1900s, demand for recreational facilities from newly developed neighborhoods in the area led to the installation of new access roads and native plant life was increasingly replaced with non-native trees and turf grass. This trend of native habitat removal for the sake of a manicured, British-inspired appearance culminated with the removal of Grenadier Pond's naturally marshy shoreline in the 1950s and 60s, which was replaced by expanded grass running up to a concrete retaining wall at the water's edge. The removal of pond habitat, along with pollution and an overabundance of nutrients in the water, meant that native populations of painted turtles, along with salmon, largemouth bass, and pike fish species, all suffered enormously. So, by imposing colonial assumptions about what was important for this urban green space, the city nearly eliminated much of the rich habitat which had existed there for thousands of years. However, since the 1970s, residents and city officials have made concerted efforts towards the so-called renaturalization of parts of the park, as many have become more conscious of their impacts on and relationship with their environments. Many of these efforts have sought to restore healthy ecological functions and pre-colonial habitats, though with varying levels of success and frequently without serious consideration of indigenous knowledge and caretaking practices. Despite these shortcomings, the ongoing success of one major ecological stewardship project can be seen in the black oak savanna habitat contained within High Park's borders. Black oak savanna, characterized by fields of native grassland interspersed with impressive oak trees, once covered 2 million hectares, which is about 5 million acres, of what is now called Ontario. Yet, with the arrival of European settlers, vast swaths of this habitat were cleared to make way for farmland, and today, less than half a percent of its initial footprint remains. 
High Park's own patch of black oak savanna suffered for many years, facing threats from pesticide use, non-native species, and encroaching recreational uses. Yet this habitat's rarity and local relevance has led to intentional restoration efforts, especially starting in the early 2000s. Looking to traditional indigenous practices, prescribed burns are now a regular feature of habitat management in the park. These intentional fires have been a long-standing feature of indigenous black oak savanna stewardship, as they clear out dead foliage and dried grasses while restoring nutrients to the soil. The fire-resistant bark of the black oak trees, along with their ability to sprout new, healthy stems in response to these events, means that fire is an integral part of the functioning ecosystem, one that has now been brought back after years of suppression. In my recent visits to High Park, I've seen scores of families enjoying picnic lunches together, crowds of kids eager to spot the zoo's capybaras, and young couples taking photos in front of whichever trees are blooming at their peak. But as visitors look across Grenadier Pond or stop to read signs explaining the Black Oak Savannah's significance, perhaps fewer of them also stop to reconsider their relationship with the land they stand on and the people who have long been its inhabitants and stewards. As we imagine what our relationships with native land should look like, and how we can return indigenous land sovereignty, spaces like High Park are some of the first places we should look to as sites of change. With that in mind, you might want to learn more about the decolonization work done by groups like the Indigenous Land Stewardship Circle, who present some alternative visions for the future of ecologies in Toronto. You can find out more about them online at indigenouslandstewardshipcircleto.wordpress.com. Interestingly, the original owner of High Park Estate, John Howard, was a city surveyor, which is a profession that is at the basis of settler colonial claims for land, as well as the subsequent dispossession and displacement of indigenous peoples. I personally got to learn more about these issues surrounding land and colonialism in the Foundations of Planning and Politics course in EUC, but you'll find similar themes explored in courses throughout the faculty. This episode features information gathered from High Park Nature. You can find more information as well as future events hosted by the organization on their website, highparknature.org. So as you enjoy the warmer weather in Toronto's parks, consider taking some time to think about your own relationships with land and how they interact with broader issues of land sovereignty and the always changing ecologies we live within. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the EUC podcast, and I hope you'll join me in the next one.